0: Good evening from Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm James Brierton, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Carolina Weather Group for this Wednesday, June the 9th, 2021. After flash flooding events this past week near Charleston, South Carolina and Charlotte, North Carolina, we're going to be digging into and learning more about how the National Weather Service forecasts excessive rainfall events and the risk for flash flooding. And a reminder that you can check out this episode and more 24 hours a day on the all new Carolina WeatherNet. Streaming for free anytime on the Carolina Weather Group's YouTube channel. Check that out. And don't forget, as you're traveling, you can take us with you by checking out our audio podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, that's it from me. Let's hand things off to Scotty Powell and the panel with tonight's interview.
1: We're happy to have you this evening. We have with us Alex Lamers. He is the warning coordination meteorologist for the Weather Prediction Center in College Park, Maryland. And uh, the Weather Prediction Center does a whole heck of a lot in the weather community, from flash flooding to winter weather products and a little bit of uh, this and that and everything else. Uh, So we're excited to have Alex on with us tonight. Kind of talk about the inner workings of the Weather Prediction Center, but we really want to focus on flash flooding. We know over the last several years, Here in the Carolinas, we've seen numerous flash flood events associated with tropical systems, and just heavy rain events that's uh, set up over the Carolinas. So we really want to focus in on that tonight and kind of talk about uh, why we are seeing these events and some of the statistics that may kind of make you scratch your head and think, my goodness, I didn't realize it, that we had that big of a, a flash flood threat here in the Carolinas. So we hope you will enjoy this conversation tonight. Um, Alex, I'll go ahead and bring you in. Uh, we uh, welcome to you the program tonight since you're a first time guest. And we're happy to announce that we are breaking uh, Alex into the weather podcast world. So this is his first weather podcast, so uh, we appreciate that. Uh, we'd like to know a little bit more about you, Alex. Tell us uh, kind of the weather journey uh, that you've been on uh, from uh, the beginning to now at the Weather Prediction Center. Yeah,
0: thanks. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Um, I don't have really a, a one event that stands out. I, I know some people said, I really got into weather because of a specific hurricane or winter storm. I think it was really because as a kid, I was really interested in aviation, uh, flew a lot on, on flights. We, my family lived in uh, California, my immediate family, but a lot of our extended family was back in the Midwest in Wisconsin. So a lot of cross-country trips flying over the the mountains out West got to see some cool cloud formations and that kind of just naturally, uh, one thing led to another. And I became interested in, in meteorology. Um, and then, uh, decided to pursue it as a degree, went to the University of Oklahoma for my schooling, and then went into the Weather Service immediately after. Um, been at a number of, of uh, locations in the Weather Service. And um, so, I've been in the offices in Milwaukee and Norman and Duluth and Tallahassee, and now I'm at the Weather Prediction Center.
2: Well, Alex, uh, being at the Weather Prediction Center, could you tell us a little bit about what y'all do there and how you guys cater to the entire nation through all of your work? Yeah, it's a really big mission.
0: Um, So the Weather Prediction Center, we're one of nine specialized national centers in the the National Weather Service. Uh, And I'm sure people are familiar with the National Hurricane Center, the Storm Prediction Center. We're one of those. Um, and the idea is each of these centers provides a specialized uh, expertise on weather related topics. So at WPC, our bread and butter is really precipitation, extreme precipitation uh, in that day kind of one to seven time frame. Um, and that includes both rainfall and winter weather. Um, and uh, we've been doing uh, rain f- precipitation forecasting since about 1960. Um, and so it's a pretty long legacy uh, here and that's been passed down through the decades, but there's a lot of other stuff we do. Uh, we have um, OCONUS support. So there's an Alaska desk uh, that provides support in the medium range time frame for Alaska, medium range forecasting for the CONUS. Uh, we even have an international desk that's a partnership with USAID and the State Department, and they do training for um, visiting meteorologists from Central America, the Caribbean, and South America. And um, they produce products. You can find them on our website. They're kind of um, you know, training products, uh, and, and they're used as guidance in some other countries as well. Um, but that's kind of another cool facet. And they provide some support to our own meteorologists uh, who are working the U S focus desks uh, during tropical cyclones.
1: So Alex, you know, we, I think, you know,
2: people who've listened to this show, we've always had, we've had various warning coordination, meteorologists from a lot of local WFOs um, <clears throat> come through. What is the difference between a warning coordination, meteorologist at the local level versus at a national
1: center?
0: It, there are some similarities. So it, there's aspects of outreach and training. Um, it's just, I'm not necessarily going to uh, you know the local firehouse and giving a skywarn talk like a, a local WCM might, but I might be stopping by a FEMA office and giving them training on um, uh, tropical cyclone rainfall, for instance. Um, so there's interaction with with our core partners in the weather service. There's um, interaction with members of the general public too. Um, and there's also a coordination aspect across the weather service, and and I do consider you know other offices in the weather service one of our key partners. So really staying in touch with those local offices, uh, some of our regional offices, uh, and working together on you know uh, anything from policy on specific products to forecasting challenges, reviewing big events, that sort of thing. Let's talk about the product itself.
3: What what we see on. Uh, What we pull from the internet, what we pull from your website, And use all throughout our forecasting efforts. Um, We talk about QPF, which for the public is Quantitative Precipitation Forecast. Um, Tell us a little bit about that. Like, what goes into this product and where is the data coming from? How are you sort of, how are you generating these maps that you show?
0: That's actually the one I was referring to that we've been doing since 1960. We actually have verification charts on our website that go back to 1960. So those forecasts are for liquid equivalent precipitation, and obviously that has implications for Winter weather just as much as it does for a landfalling tropical cyclone. We're basically trying to forecast the amount of precipitation that will fall. Um, and the intent is for us to forecast the precipitation kind of in a big picture aerial average sense, where we know we're not going to hit every little max and min here or there, but to, to give a good big picture and um, you know, a key user of our precipitation forecast is the river forecast centers in, uh, the weather service. So, um, they like to have, you know, continuity with the general, uh, areas of precipitation that we're forecasting. They don't like the, the maximum to jump from basin to basin, um, real wildly from shift to shift, uh, to, to provide, you know, good continuity with those river forecasts that people rely on. So, um, we tend to, to approach it from a big picture sense. Um, and Overall, if you look back over the decades, the skill of our precipitation forecast has improved about a day a decade. So to, to put that in maybe easier to understand terms, um, a day three forecast today is basically as skillful as a, a same day forecast was in the late 90s. Um, so it's been a pretty steady improvement there. Actually, the, the rate of skill improvement has increased since about the modernization here in the weather service, or that was in the early to mid-1990s. Um, but, but that's that's good. We like to see that. And, and a lot of that is due to improved numerical weather models. We use a lot of that guidance as the basis for the forecast. Nowadays, we're, we're kind of blending those models in, um In a software program in the past, our QPF forecast might have actually been hand drawn on a map and that sort of thing. Um, So uh, a little bit different, but uh, the legacy is there and it goes back, you know, pretty far in in the weather services history. How is it
3: relayed? Is it uh, we go out, we have day one, we have one through three. I mean, how how are we um, putting this out? Does it go up to a week?
0: Yes. So we produce our precipitation forecast out. One week, um, and the forecasters are basically doing those in six-hour increments. So every every six-hour block of time, they are uh, evaluating the situation in that time frame and uh, making adjustments as necessary. And I'm glad you brought up the WFOs because that's that is important. We do have a pretty significant coordination aspect. So we are doing a lot of work, especially in the last few years of um, getting this process improved uh, and how we're working together on the precipitation forecast. The goal is to have one weather service precipitation forecast that you would get the same thing as if you go to a WFO as you do, if you go to the WPC webpage. So um, there's some behind the scenes kind of improvements that are being made to that process now. Um, And I, I think, we've made big strides on that over the last decade or so. Um, but really every day, the, our forecasters and the forecasters at every local office around the country are talking constantly about these changes. Um, and, you know, we're relying on their, their local um, knowledge, uh, what they might want to see and what they, they know what they're talking to their partners about in terms of local concerns as well. And they're relying on us for um, some big picture stuff like, model biases in certain situations and that sort of thing, because every day we're doing precipitation forecasts across the entire country. So we get a lot of at-bats on that. and we, we get a lot of the ensemble model data that we we pour over every day. Any special circumstances where you might uh, update more than twice a day? Yeah, I mean, we have the ability to update unscheduled. Uh, it doesn't happen too often. Uh, the, the, the update cycle tends to be tied to the major model cycles. So the 12Z models come in. We run the forecast, and then that gets sent out. Uh, same thing overnight, and and it kind of matches those big forecast cycles from the local offices as well. I'm sure if your your listeners are used to re, um, digging into the forecast details and they like reading like the area forecast discussions they're they're used to seeing that kind of mid to late afternoon time frame and then the early morning hours when updates come out it's about the same for us in most
2: situations excessive rainfall fork outlook, outlooks pardon me those are that's another product that a lot of people are familiar with especially within the weather community and i think uh, you know, a lot of private sector meteorologists also try to communicate those i think of tv Now, uh, when you guys issue an excessive rainfall outlook, uh, it gets communicated to the TV world and gets dispersed from there. Can you tell us a little bit about what those outlooks are and what goes into making the decision between a slight risk and a high risk? Basically, uh, it's
0: an outlook that's trying to describe Uh, the risk of rainfall that may lead to flash flooding in your general area. uh, Within 25 miles of a point, that's what the probabilities are. So it is sort of like the Storm Prediction Center outlooks, if people are familiar with those. They have the same sort of uh, probability definition in that those probabilities you see, those are within 25 miles of a point. So Um, let's say there's a slight risk that's like a 10 to 20% chance of rainfall that might cause flash flooding within that area. And if you look at a map and you look at like Raleigh, for instance, you draw a radius of 25 miles around the city center, it's roughly going to encompass that whole metro area. So if you're sitting in Raleigh, there's a slight risk. It tells you on that day In that metro area, there's about a ten to twenty percent chance of flash flooding. So that's how we get those probabilities. Um, And uh, what goes into making the risk determinations? It's it's a lot of different factors. Um, You know, I I think back to the old Doswell 1996 paper about flash flooding, which to paraphrase, he basically says. Well, he does say it's an almost absurdly simple concept and that the heaviest rain will fall where it rains hardest for the longest time. So there's an intensity component and there's a duration component. And, um, the intensity component, you, the high res model, uh, high resolution models that we use are getting better and better at capturing some of those really intense rain rates at the hourly three hourly, six hourly timescale, um, really where we have some chance to grow in the near future, I think is with sub hourly rainfall and the, the latest upgrade of the high, high resolution, rapid refresh HRR model. The, the latest version of that has 15 minute rainfall information in it. Um, so uh, that that's actually really cool to see. And that can be super important for burn scars out West, the sub hourly rainfall rates, as well as in urban areas. Um, so we're looking at that sort of real short, high intensity rainfall, what might lead to a large runoff response. Uh, we consider the general meteorology. So I know, for instance, when the storm prediction center puts together their outlooks, they're looking at typical ingredients, the instability, is there going to be wind shear, that sort of thing. We're looking at similar types of large scale pattern. Um, and then also there's vulnerability underneath that. So the product that we do look at flash flood guidance for that, it gives you kind of an estimate of the rainfall that would be required to cause flash flooding. But generally speaking, you look at an area, is it in droughts? Has it been really wet for the last several weeks? Um, that's another thing that we look at. So there's a lot that goes into it and and it's another product that's coordinated with local offices.
2: You guys also issue you know, uh, several different risk outlooks uh, in terms of from slight all way up to high. With the high risk, um, obviously that's the highest on the, uh, on the, the chart, but they, those high risk days account for 9 out of 10 flood-related damages and two-fifths of all flood-related fatalities. So it's, it's clear that high-risk days need to be taken seriously. Um, obviously, all of them are are serious. Even a slight risk needs to be taken into consideration each day. But we can talk about high risk days uh, and how public the public can prepare for those if they're in a high risk. So we look back at days in which a high risk was in effect,
0: and we didn't necessarily limit our search to just events within that high risk area. Because uh, I, you know, one thing to communicate about these risk outlooks is you know, uh, even on a big severe weather day, for instance you don't necessarily have to be in the high risk area if the the signal is there for an outbreak to have a bad day. Um, It's similar. You know, I don't think we really use the phraseology of flood outbreaks, but um, similarly, you wouldn't necessarily need to be in the high risk. Um, So we looked at adjacent slight and moderate risk areas as well, but when a high risk is in effect those days, there are about 90% of us flood damages occur on those days and about two out of every five flood fatalities occur on those days as well. And that's important because, um, they're relatively rare. It's about a dozen or so days per year that we would have a high risk in effect. They're a little more common on the excessive rainfall outlook than they are, um, from SPC for, for severe weather outbreaks. But yes, because of that research, we've kind of started, um, pushing or branding them as uh, potentially damaging and deadly days Um, just for people to raise awareness um, that they need to be thinking a little bit more about their particular vulnerability and risk um, and maybe change their, change their usual routine on those days. Um, And our, our verification statistics show that those risk categories are calibrated. So it's a probabilistic outlook and, it's so uh, a moderate risk, you know, that's like a 20 to 50% chance. Well, about 40% of the time in those moderate risk areas, there is flash flooding uh, within 25 miles of a point. So it is fairly well calibrated. Um, And, and so, you know, when you look at this research that says, yes, there are huge impacts on high risk days and yes, we are calibrated. There is skill in actually identifying them. Then you start to think, what should our message be to the public on those days? Um, you know, should you be out driving on the road? I mean, when you think about it to about two out of every three fatalities related to flooding are related to vehicles. So, I mean, it's uh, it's definitely uh, if, if you are, let's say your commute to work um, takes you through low water crossings or um, through an underpass that, you know, just in the back of your mind, like, yeah, that place usually floods. I see water under there all the time. It might be those days where you say, if I have the ability to work from home, maybe that's a good thing to do. Um, If I can adjust my commutes, uh, give myself more time, or maybe plan for alternate routes, that's another good thing to do. Um, I think just equipping people with those short little nuggets of things that they can do on those days be really helpful. But there are certainly days we want people to be paying attention to the potential for serious uh, flood impacts.
1: Well, Alex, I have a deep question for you and feel free to answer as little or as much as you want to. Um, <laughs> obviously, over the last several years, uh, we have seen the magnitude of heavy rain events continue to increase. Um, It it seems like there's yearly, uh, we have 5,000 year floods, 500 year floods. We're starting to see these floods occur more and more uh, on a frequent basis. Um, Why is that? Why, Why are we starting to see these heavier rain events happen, you know, every, every, it seems like every month or so.
0: There has been an uptick in the frequency of extreme rainfall events. You know, there's a a number of different ways you can define that, whether it's the 95th percentile events or 99th percentile events, or, um, you know, there's, there's a a number of different ways you can look at that. But um, if you look at the national climate assessment, and this has been actually pretty consistent in the last several assessments that have issued that, the heavy precipitation events in most of the United States have increased in in intensity and frequency, um, since the turn, uh, since we got into the 20th century. Um, and there are regional differences. I think the bigger increases that you've seen are tend to be in the Eastern half of the country, particularly the Northeast, but the Southeast and, and up in the Midwest as well. Um, and, uh i mean the the basic principle there is warmer air can hold more water i mean if you think about it that's why when you're in a winter storm you're not getting 30 inches of liquid equivalent i mean that would be mind blowing right you'd have 300 inches of snow that's crazy um uh, because that that colder air can only hold so much uh water it's also why when you have um, a, a winter storm, if you look at the vertical profile of the atmosphere and you have those deep isothermal layers that are almost at the freezing point, but they're not quite. So yeah, if you look, there's several thousand feet deep, you can really get, um, very heavy snowfall on, and a lot of liquid equivalent from those storms because it's a, on average, that profile of the atmosphere is warmer, uh, than, than a cooler profile. So, um, that, that's the basic principle. Uh, not an expert on the nitty-gritty details of that necessarily but um that's one aspect uh the other thing to consider i think in terms of people are like wow it just seems like you know i'm looking at the news these days and you know there every few weeks or month or so there's these pictures of you know lots of flooding um so there's that the you know what's going on in the atmosphere then there's also development patterns i mean that plays a role right if you have cities growing outward uh, and Steven Strader, somebody that I follow on Twitter, he's a good follow. If you if you like to um think about weather related risk and disaster related risk, he has, has written and Walker Ashley, I believe, too, about this expanding bullseye effect. And, you know, it 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 comes up with respect to tornadoes. Uh, if there's bigger cities um you know tornadoes that in the 1950s may have kind of passed through the woods more may be hitting suburban areas now same thing if you have a lot more impervious surface um on the ground uh then that may change the runoff patterns it may change the way um, that people are affected um how people commute you know I, i think society tends to evolve in these ways and um And so people will be dealing with these challenges, but development patterns play a role in terms of the actual impact uh, that you get from rainfall as well. So in over, over a metro area, I mean, it could be that in the 1950s, maybe, maybe it wouldn't have had as the equivalent amount of rainfall back then, maybe wouldn't have even had um, quite as much of an impact as it would today, just given the amount of, you know, roadway and uh, impervious surface with concrete and stuff uh, we have now. Talk a little bit about your challenges with
3: some of these large, you know, massive rain events that that are triggered by um,
0: different systems. It is a big challenge. I think one problem is there's different scales, right? You're talking about a Harvey or a Florence and you have heavy rain over a huge area, Then you look at something like Ellicott City, which is a particularly vulnerable base, and it was really high intensity rates over a very small amount of time. And actually in the 2016 event, I think there's a rain gauge in Ellicott City or, or somewhere near there, certainly within the basin, that had just over two inches of rain in 15 minutes which is, is crazy. (laughs) So you, you think about that and um, those, those short high intensity bursts of rain, they even show up in some tropical systems as well. If you go back, um, I think Harris County, Jeff Lindner down there, uh, they produced a good report of the rainfall from Harvey. And you you go look at the rates that are down at that five, 10, 15 minute timescale. They're pretty crazy. And and understanding those in those vulnerable areas and basins, I think, is an area we really uh, have to grow in our expertise. Um, There's I I think there's um, good opportunities for research there. And like I just said, um, our the flagship high res model for the National Weather Service um, did recently add that 15 minute rainfall information. Uh, and I will say we do have a test bed um, at our office, so similar to what you have in Norman with the, the hazardous weather experiments, um, they they evaluate experimental severe weather products. Our our test bed up in um, College Park is focused on uh, extreme precipitation events. So that's this is the sort of thing they'll look at that sub hourly rainfall information. Um, I think another big challenge is probably you know, how, how confident are we that that duration of heavy rain is going to be um, maintained? Because remember I said, it was an intensity and a duration thing. And you get these cases where things are moving slowly, but they're moving, right? There's maybe like a five knot or 10 knot drift to things. So if you have a band of rain, you're going to get heavy rain, but it's going to move off of an individual location after an hour or two. Then there's cases where it's almost like a fire hose. You mentioned the 2015 case where you're basically siphoning moisture off Hurricane Joaquin, deep, deep pluma moisture. And it just kind of stayed in place, um, for a long time. Uh, and, um, I think being able to differentiate those subtle differences in the flow, um, that that's a big thing, but the model has been getting better and better. Um, I think understanding those. What what they're producing, their strengths and weaknesses, and the, the the ensemble probabilities that we're now getting, which are very powerful. Um, that those are all useful tools in our toolbox. Um, but but it's it it is often a very fine line between. <laughs> You know, like I said, something that has a very slow drift and something that's stalled. Uh, And that's an important difference and distinction to make.
1: Well, Alex, uh, thank you so much for that information. Um, Great information. And and we hope that our listeners and those who are watching kind of take this, this threat serious and uh, really pay attention to those outlooks as we enter the uh, the more uh, flash flood season with uh, with spring and summertime and those tropical systems and there's those heavy thunderstorm days where we get three four five inches in, in one setting. So, um, Alex, if if anyone wants to uh, follow the products, um, you know, I know you have website, social media. What's what's the best way to to get the information?
0: Yeah, uh, the Weather Prediction Center website's a good resource. Um, uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, just if you search for Weather Prediction Center WPC, you'll probably find it. Um, those are probably the best ways to to get you know the latest and greatest from from what we're doing. Um, and uh, and yeah, I, I mean, um, I think I I'd like people to get in the practice of, for instance, checking the excessive rainfall outlook as much as they check the the convective outlooks and the Hurricane Center webpage. Um, and, and we've been partnering for instance, with the hurricane center more and more. So now if it's a tropical cyclone, you get those rainfall maps, you get the ERO maps right on the hurricane center webpage. Now you don't have to actually search for them. So, but you know, WPC website, that's, that's a good place to start.
1: All great information. I know that all of us here on the panel uses, and we encourage you to do that as well. Well, Alex, appreciate your time tonight. Thank you all for watching and listening to the Carolina weather group. We'll see you back here real soon.